Jack Spirito with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is October 31st, 2014. This is episode 1457 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for Monster Truck. No, it's time for your calls to 866-65. Think again, 866-65. T-H-I-N-K, if you do not have letters on your numbers for whatever reason, the actual number, 866-658-4465. You call that number, you'll get a voice message. You will not be on this week's show, because this week's show is already being done, and it's pre-recorded. It doesn't work that way. You won't be on next week's show either. I'm going to tell you right now, there won't be a Friday show next week. We have, a you know, like 40 people here and an event and a class and guest instructors and uh, all kinds of stuff going on. So uh, I will be scrubbing uh, at least Friday's show, probably Thursday's show as well next week. And um, I might have a surprise for you next week, though, so stay tuned. And then we'll be back in the following week with another Friday, Friday, Friday show. Anyway. With that, the formula to get on the air is pretty simple. Make your phone call from a quiet location. And uh, when you do, make sure you have some service bars on your uh, cell phone if you're using a cell phone. Make your point or ask your question immediately and then give me your supporting details. That will make it much more likely for you to get through my crazy Friday morning screening process. Anyway, before I take your calls, let us go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. We are rapidly devolving into a nation that calls a guy whenever they need something done. I need a picture hung. Call a guy. Need my oil change. Take it to the oil place. Uh, I need a bookmarker. Uh, go buy one on Amazon. Um, how about we start doing stuff again? One way we can do that is by learning small crafts uh, where we have to use hand tools and we have to think and we have to form things and make things fit and make things work and use our creativity in our minds. And what kid doesn't want to do a knife project with his dad anyway, man? I mean, come on. Check out KnifeKits.com. You can develop a skill set, build something custom and unique. It doesn't cost a lot of money. Even if you've never done it before, they have the stuff you need to learn how to do it. Books, DVDs, great kits, great pricing, great service. And if you're not sure what you need, give them a call. They'll help you out. KnifeKits.com. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. Yesterday we talked about herbs and all the wonderful things that herbs can do to make us healthier. You know, herbs taste good, too, and they make our food good. Chef Keith Snow can tell you about that and a lot of other things he can teach you about and making cooking a life skill, learning how to cook seasonally and locally, great recipes, great ingredients. His herbal spice packs, man, are just awesome. I use them every week. I'm cooking at least two or three meals using Chef Keith's stuff. I mean, it makes it easy to endorse somebody when you use their products every day. Those of you coming to the uh, workshop, a lot of the cooking that was done has used his uh, herbs and spice mixes, and a lot of stuff yet to be cooked yet will be using his herbs and spice mixes. I only take sponsors that I truly endorse. It's easy to endorse Chef Keith. And if you don't think cooking is a prepper-slash-survival skill, Folks, you never lived on MREs for six months. I did, and I can tell you, it gets old fast, and you get creative fast. Learn to be creative before you need to. HarvestEating.com. Next up, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get discounts to KnifeKits.com, Harvest Eating, and many of our other sponsors. In total, over 40 companies will give you discounts if you join the MSB, and you'll be able to get these savings on things you're probably buying every, every day anyway. Uh, stuff from guns to gardens and everything else in between. And support the show at a whopping 20 cents an episode. Really, it's like 18.3 cents if you do the math. 
military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount. Email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or did if you're prior service. I'll give you a discount code to save you more money. With that, let us look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1457. I have two for you today. Another one that's hard to pick from. A shave, a haircut, and the death of George Washington. And Tudors, the birth of King Henry, of Henry VII. Um, I'm going to do a shave, a haircut, and the death of George Washington. Tudors is pretty interesting, too, especially if you watch the TV show, miniseries, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, ever wonder why barbers display a pole? It's the law. Around 1308, the Guild of Worshipful Company of Barbers of London was formed, and the law required surgeon barbers to display a pole with red and white stripes, while barbers who only cut hair should display a white pole. Aside from pulling teeth, these early surgeons did bloodletting. They believed that the illness came from an imbalance of the fluids of the body, and release of blood brought back balance, brought healthy balance back. People would visit the barber to get their blood drained at a proper time, depending on their horoscope. That meant they needed a good calendar to guide them. This year in Mantz, Germany, the first painted, printed medical document is produced. It is called the Calendar for Bloodletting. It comes with a diagram of the body called the Ader Lossmann, Bloodletting Man, which shows the sites for lancing the body. <sighs> yeah. That was modern medicine, by the way, folks. Anyway, my take by Alex Shrugged. In the modern day, U.S. barbers display a red, white, and blue pole that reflects the colors of the U.S. flag. Bloodletting was practiced until the 19th century and may have been the death of George Washington. On a cold December in 1799, the former president of the United States went out into the snow to continue the maintenance of his plantation. Upon his return, he developed a sore throat that turned bad. He believed in regular bloodletting. So he had someone drain half a pint. Then three physicians were called, each draining some more blood until nearly half his body supply was gone in the span of a few hours. His last words were, "'Tis well." So ends the legacy of George Washington in 1799, quite a few hundred years later than this. But I have another little interesting tidbit for you. You'd think that this would be a part of medicine's history that... Modern medicine would want to distance itself from, but really not a tremendous amount has changed in some ways with the philosophy of medicine. We either cut it out, burn it out, or poison it. That's the way modern medicine works. Uh, the hell with balancing the body. And there is a deep root into this bloodletting uh, from modern medicine, so much so that the most prestigious medical journal out there is probably the Lancet. The Lancet is the tool the bloodletting surgeon used to open the body and allow the blood to flow. And one of the most prestigious medical journals, if not the most prestigious medical journals in the world today, still bears its name. The more things change, the more they stay the same. My take by Jack Spierko. Let us now get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is taking your calls and questions and comments, etc., to the think line, think line, blah, 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 to the think line, again, 866-65-THINK is the number if you want to call for a future show. I will give you a little secret here. I tend to scan 
at least in the last couple of months, for some reason, I've just preferred to the most recent backwards on Friday morning. So calling the day before the show uh, gives you a little bit better chance of getting on the show as well. With that, let's go ahead and take your first call. We do have uh, three uh, chime-ins today from expert council members that we'll pepper throughout the show as well. With that, let's take that first call. Hi, Jack. This is Mason in North Georgia. I'm an MSB member and Permaethos founder. I have a question about shade-tolerant vegetables. I'm having very little luck in my backyard garden, mostly because I just don't get enough sun. I'm guessing the plot that I have probably gets two to three, maybe four hours of direct sun during the uh, full summer months. So can you recommend any vegetables or uh, greens or things that would do well in that sort of condition? And I look forward to hearing your answer. Bye-bye. <clears throat> There's no magic answer to this. I can give you some advice, but you are limited if you are truly in a, a sh overshaded environment as to what you can grow. First of all, you're on the right track. Your greens and leafy vegetables are going to be your best bets. Arugula, Asian greens, chard, your culinary herbs like uh, like basil and oregano and thyme, uh, kale, lettuce, mescaline mixes, mustard greens. Uh, maybe you can get by with root vegetables like carrots and what have you, but they're going to need about five hours. So the first thing I would say is you really need to determine how much sun you have. So what are you really working with? Because you're saying, I think I have uh, about this or that or maybe this. You need to actually know. So it would be a great idea to go out to like Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever and get a, a sun meter that will actually tell you. You put it in a place and you don't have to worry about it and you come back and it tells you how long uh, you had full sun on it. So I would move that around your yard and actually develop um, some actual intelligence, and I don't mean intelligence like being smart, I mean intelligence like on-the-ground intelligence of what you really have. Now, this time of year, your numbers are going to be off from summer, but it'll start to help you figure out where things are. Where is your sunniest areas? Uh, that way you can maximize things and at least find the spots that have the most sun and be sure how much time you have. And then you can look up lists of shade-tolerant plants And you can see how much time they need. And if they need four and the spot you have has two, don't put them there. You can also look at, and you might be much better off going toward perennials uh, in your backyard, that it, you know, given that it is so shaded. Some, some perennials that do pretty good with mottled shade are blackberries, blueberries, currants, elderberries, gooseberries, um, uh, small cherries like morella cherries, Mulberry will do okay in the shade. It's, you know, you can do mulberry, the dwarf mulberries. Uh, muscadine actually does pretty decent in shade. Muscadine grape. Uh, and there's a lot of other things. Strawberries, especially alpine strawberries, raspberries. So it might just be that you're better off moving toward that. Um, all your leafy uh, herbs will do okay. Uh, bee balm, calendula, um, Lemon balm, lovage, mints, oreganos, parsley, sage, thyme, uh, anything like that should do okay. And you can grow vegetables. I mean, I'm sorry, not vegetables. You can grow uh, mushrooms, too. Obviously, the shade's good for mushrooms. So those are the directions you could go in. There's some other things we can do, though. Number one, is there anything you can do to open up? I mean, a lot of times people think, well, I have to cut all these trees down. I don't want to do that. Uh, a lot of times just taking one or two limbs off strategically buys you an hour. 
An hour is the difference between three and four hours or four and five hours. It's a big deal. If it's the difference between three and four hours, it's a 25% increase in total solar aspect uh, exposure. It's a big deal. So that's another one to look at. Another thing to look at is, can you bounce light? A lot of times you go into somebody's yard, especially these urban environments, and the way their you know aspect works, there's a, there's a fence. And that fence gets hit with sun a lot more up high than the ground does down low, for instance. Painting that fence white will bounce light back toward the ground. And then if you can do it without pissing off a neighbor, if you were to angle it just ever so... You know, we want your fence perfectly straight. That's what the HOA says. And yeah, I do. And I don't want it leaning. But if it was leaning just two degrees into the solar aspect, it's going to transfer that light down. So painting a fence white. A lot of times, look at your vertical spaces. A lot of times your vertical spaces, like a fence uh, or a tree, gets a lot more solar exposure. So we talk about muscadines. What about muscadines or other grapes and putting them up a tree? You know, coaxing them along until you get them up to where they can get to the light. Uh, don't confine yourself just to your backyard. Look at your front yard. What can you put it out there? A lot of times if the backyard is really, really shaded, there's, there's, you know, sunny spots here and there in the front yard. Sometimes that's a problem because, well, people have nothing better to do with their time than bitch about somebody growing food. But you can usually figure out how to do Front yard landscaping that looks like normal landscaping to people, they don't understand that it's food. Uh, uh, multicolored Swiss chard is one great example of something that does well in you know good sunlight, and it does okay in shade too, but you can put it out in your landscaped yard, and no one would see it as anything other than an ornamental. Uh, herbs, mints, flowers, etc., All of these things can be uh, moved into your front yard. So those are some advice tips that I have for you. And again, look at how you can bounce light painting surfaces white, putting in small reflecting ponds. or I mean, you've got to work with what you have in the end. Um, the other thing is, how's your winter gardening opportunities? North Georgia, pretty temperate, mild climate. And a lot of those trees may have no leaves on them. Now, the sun's lower in the sky, but you know you might find that your fall to spring gardening season, especially with some frost protection or a small greenhouse, might actually be more productive for you than your summer season because all of those leaves fall, assuming you have deciduous trees, and it would be a deciduous-dominant environment generally in that, that part of the, uh, of the United States. Uh, so maybe looking at just flip it, flopping your seasons and getting your, you know, your better production out of your fall, winter, early spring to mid-spring gardens. Anyway, with that, let's take another call. That was a good question. Thank you for it. Hi, Jack. This is DH from Colorado's Western Slope. My question is whether it's possible to opt out of the horrible insurance deal known as Social Security. I heard a long time ago about rescinding a Social Security number or giving it back or stopping using it. Just wondering what you knew about that or whether we simply need to not sign up the next generation for Social Security numbers. Love to hear your comments. Thanks. Bye. It's a what I think Mike Gazer, my good friend from the financial analysis world, would refer to as a wonderful fiction. I can just renounce my Social Security number or never get one, and then I don't have to pay Social Security. It doesn't work that way. 
Um, people that, that, that practice the avoidance of taxation by any number of loopholes often find themselves confined uh, in these state institutions that look a lot like schools. However, they're a little bit more stringent about not letting you leave. We call them jails and prisons. And when you start avoiding federal taxes, you get to go to federal prison. And please don't believe any of the nonsense you hear about how great Club Fed is because while there are some uh, white-collar, if you want to call them that, federal prisons that are definitely preferential to some of the state prisons and things like that and, and super maxes and max security, it's still not a place you ever want to be, uh, and specifically not for something as ridiculous as not paying tax because you thought you could avoid it because you got rid of a number. Social Security is paid in because it's required. It is not paid in because you have a Social Security number. No employer in the United States of America today is going to hire you without a Social Security number because they have to have some place to report that they've paid the money to so they can deduct it as an expense. But the only way you could work this out would be to be self-employed. By the way, now you're going to pay twice as much Social Security, but to then only take cash and basically go anarchist off the grid. I actually support people that do that, though I think you're taking a big risk. And there's so many things you can't do because you've chosen to go that route. But if that's what you want to do, I support the spirit in which you uh, rebel with. And you are accomplishing something. Just could you accomplish more if you actually did things above board, at least on that level? And the answer is probably, but I'm not going to judge you for it, man. I get it. But when it comes to like the rest of the world, uh, just not getting your kids a Social Security number is not going to work. Sooner or later, they're going to have to get one, and the government will be happy to give them one. But you're going to get to a point where you can't even get them into school without their Social Security number. I bet that's already the case in a lot of situations. Um, there are several groups that are exempt from paying Social Security taxes, um, and none of them are probably things that you want to do save maybe one. Number one, uh, college students who work under the Federal Work Study Program are exempt. So if you're a college student and you're working under Federal Work Study, you don't have to pay SSI. Um, which means you're being paid with government money and then do not have to pay government money that we all have to pay. So you're getting to double dip. Um, state and local government workers like teachers, city workers, police, firefighters, etc., that were hired before March 31st, 1986, unless you have a time machine or that's already you, it doesn't apply, and you have to participate in their employer's alternative retirement system. So there was basically a loophole for government workers up until 1986 that was closed. Self-employed workers, oh, that's me, yeah, with yearly net earnings less than $400. So if you can live on $400 a year, self-employed, you don't have to pay. I, I don't even think I would care. The amount you would pay would be so low at that point, it doesn't really matter. Here's the one that maybe somehow, some sort of way you can finagle figuring out how to do it, but you, you'd have to pay yourself out, out of the activity to do it. I guess some people really pay themselves well out of this activity, though. Ministers, members of certain religious orders, and Christian science practitioners may file IRS Form 4361 to exempt themselves from self-employment taxes, including FICA taxes. The picture is more complicated than this, however. See below. Um, in other words, I'm, I'm reading something here to you, and you, you got to hear the rest of it. Um, all members...
Well, here's the one some people may be able to finagle, but there's some gotchas in it that I'll have to explain to you in just a second. But ministers and members of some religious orders and Christian science practitioners can file a thing called IRS Form 4361 to exempt themselves from self-employment taxes, including FICA taxes. But it's not that simple. I'll give you more on that in a second. Let me give you the rest of the people uh, that can get out. All members of certain religious groups, like Amish and Mennonite, okay? So you can become a, a Mennonite, I guess. Election workers earning less than $1,000 a year. I mean, minor children with earnings from household work, but for whom household work is not their principal occupation. Ugh. In other words, if you pay your kid money to do something, but it's not their primary job, they don't have to pay SSI on it. And that means you don't have to match it because you're the employer then. And you'd think, well, that's stupid anyway. I would never do that. Well, no, hold on. Let me tell you how why that ex exists. Let's say that my son, who's now 25, was still 15. And let's say he had a job working at On the Border like he did when he was 15. And let's say that I wanted him to work in my business as well. And I decided to hire him. And I want to create a deduction from it. I can actually put him down as an employee. As long as he doesn't go over a certain amount of income, and as long as he doesn't earn more from what he's doing for me, than what he would be doing, let's say, for On the Border is his principal employment. And as long as he's a minor, I can deduct it as a legitimate uh, expense from my business. I don't have to match SSI for him, and he doesn't have to pay it. It does become income to him, though, and it's subject to income taxation. Okay, So if I was going to give my child a significant allowance, $2,000 a year, and I was self-employed and had my own business, and he was working outside of the home, this is a way I can create basically a phantom deduction as long as I can justify his activity in my business, which would be very difficult for someone to prove didn't happen. You know, I mean, you'd keep records that he worked two hours a week for, you know, ten weeks out of the year or whatever, and you paid him X. Uh, and you can do that. That's why that exists. So the thing is, with the ministers and the religious officials, it's more complicated. The officials need to certify that they are religiously opposed to receiving public insurance benefits, and they have to file by a certain deadline after earning a certain amount as a minister. You also have, if you file this exemption and choose to revoke it later on, uh, during a short time window when it's possible, you're no longer eligible to file for another exemption. Once you revoke it, you won't get another one. So I guess it would be possible to become religious in some way, file formal objections to this, and get out. I think you're dancing on a technicality there. You better be able to dadgone well prove it, but... I don't know. Maybe I should file the first, uh, create the uh, the first national church of deists, and be the head minister. Run all my business through there, pay myself out of it, and say as a deist I'm opposed to public assistance because we are a very libertarian oriented business, and that's part of our faith. I don't know. I think you're. I I don't know, man. I, I think again, you're just setting yourself up as a target there, unless you're in, unless you're using it the way that it was written for its intent. So if you try to create your own loophole there, I think you're going to be a big target. But basically, you don't get out of Social Security. Not getting your kids a Social Security number won't fix that. If you're working and employed in the United States, earning income from your labor, 
whether you get credit for the benefit in the future that may or may not ever happen or not, you are obligated to pay the price. And if you're self-employed, you pay double. I think it's one of the most hidden taxes in the world that people are unaware of. When you see the Social Security that comes out of your check every week, when you get your paycheck, double it. Your employer paid the same amount. That means if it says $100, okay, It was $200, and it's your money. It's your, it's not the, well, the employer's paying it for me, Jack. No, that's because you've never been an employer that you think that way. If I'm employing you, you have a cost to me to employ you. And don't think I'm retarded as an employer. Don't think I go, well, I'm going to pay you 20 bucks an hour, and I really think that's what you cost me. I know what you cost me. I know the benefit schedule. I know my burden labor rate, and that includes my match on your wages. So there's a, a, any businessman that knows what the hell he's doing has a basic factor. And it'll be like 1.37, right? And it depends on, and it, it changes based on the business and your total outlay. But my accountant would be required. I need to know when I'm evaluating labor, what is my, what is my burden rate, uh, burden labor rate factor for employees under X and over Y? Okay? And let's say it was 1.37. And what that means to me is when I'm negotiating your wage with you, And you want $20 an hour, and I'm willing to give it to you. I'm not going to beat you up with this because I know the average employee doesn't have a clue or care, but your cost to me is $27.40 an hour. And if I'm willing to pay you $20 an hour in that situation, I would be willing to pay you $27.40 if I didn't have any of the cost. Out of that cost, you know, I'm looking at basically about 7% of your wages in Social Security, which means uh, about $21.50, $21.40, $21.50 an hour, uh, a little bit more because it's more like 7.5%. So just in Social Security alone, I could be, I could be paying you a, a dollar and a half to $2 more per hour at, at a $20 hour rate. I could be paying you somewhere between $21.50 and $22 an hour. That's your tax. You're paying that. And people say, well, they wouldn't really give it to me. Uh, yes, I would. I'm an employer. I have to pay what it takes to get somebody to come work for me. And everybody else has that same factor that they have to work within and multiple other factors they have to work within that add to the cost of labor. And that equals out. And if you took it away, wages would go up like that by about 7%. Because they would have to, because the money would become available to employers to compete for your labor. And therefore, as soon as that happened, and, and I wanted to steal your good employee, I could just immediately say, I'll give you a 7% raise right now. If I was uh, Cogswell Cogs, and you were Spacely Sprockets, and, and the government got rid of that, and you at Spacely Sprockets were too stupid to give your employees a raise, I would immediately target every key employee you have. And I would offer a minimum 7.5% increase in their salary to walk across the street to Cogswell Cogs. That's the way capitalism works. Anyway, before we go to the next call, I do have something important to point out. It's Halloween! Yes, yes, it is time for little goose, ghosts, ghouls, and goblins to go out and, I don't know, whatever else kids are dressing like this year, and go <laughs> trick-or-treat and get candy. I have been watching parents who mean well but are not doing well on Facebook talking about, Oh my God, you eat too much candy for Halloween? Did you see how many calories are in a, in a Nestle... A Nestle bar with a, a little snack size one. He's, he's going to have to run for 17 hours to burn. They are children. 
It is hollow freaking ween. If your kids go trick-or-treating and get a big-ass bag of candy and want to eat until they pop, let them do it. They're kids. And it, it thankfully landed perfectly on a weekend. Let them lay on the ground for four hours with a sore stomach. They'll learn from the experience. Do not, do not do this crap. You can have one piece today and then one piece tomorrow and then we're going to put it away. And it... Listen, kids are kids once. And the parents doing that, your kids are probably going to school every day chugging chocolate and strawberry milk with more sugar in it than freaking Coca-Cola. And they're doing that every day. Christmas, Thanksgiving, Halloween, these are times for splurging. These are times for saying, hey, look, you know what? It's cool. It's cool once in a while to just say, I'm going to really enjoy myself. I'm going to go out a little bit on a limb. And that actually teaches us moderation. Because when we actually practice moderation throughout our lives and we go into a true indulgence, we enjoy it for a little while and then it ain't as good as we thought it would be and it makes it much easier to stay in moderation. When we never splurge, sooner or later moderation goes out the window. Just a little piece of advice and one more piece of advice on this October 31st, 2014. One third of the fourth quarter of 2014 is over. Tick tock. Tick tock, tick tock. The clock ticks on. Are you working for your personal liberty or not? We're very close to being able to say this is 2015. We're going to go into the holiday season. A lot of stuff's not going to get done. Once we hit Thanksgiving, everybody's in coast mode all the way up until the first of the year. That's okay. It's good to have that wind down at the end of the year. I always shut down. I shut my business down from about the 23rd of December To like the second or third of January, I just shut down. I don't do I do very minimal customer service email. That's it, and I spend it with my family. I think that's great. The other side of it is that's a pause, and pauses are good. But if you're pausing from activity, that's fine. If you're pausing from inactivity, I guess you're moving backwards. Tick tock, tick tock. The clock ticks for us all. And with that, let's take another one of your questions. Let's take one for the expert counsel. Jack, this is messages for Stephen Harris. Steven, um, there's new Enloop batteries on Amazon. The Sanyo are going away. Are those new Panasonic Enloop just the same? That is my question. The reason being is I'm noticing the Sanyo going up in price quite a bit. I was just wondering if they are the same. Thank you much. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. No is the answer. The Panasonics are not the same as the Sanyo Enloops. They are better. They are by far better. The Sanyo, Sanyo sold out to uh, Panasonic, and it was a good thing. The Sanyos were third generations, and they could be recharged 1,500 times. The new Panasonics are fourth-generation batteries, and they can be recharged up to 2,100 times. Now, that means 2,100 all the way down to nothing, all the way back up charges. If you use them for a little while in your flashlight and you go to recharge them, let's say they're on 25% down, you're looking at many thousands of charges. We're talking four or five thousand charges or more. So you always want to keep your batteries topped off when you can. If you got to use them all the way down to nothing, don't worry about it. You got 2,100 full charges of it. 
So this is a very much a good thing. Now I have all of the Panasonic and loops listed on both solar1234.com and battery1234.com. You can go up there and you can see the batteries. I got them in 12 packs, but if you click on the page for 12 packs, you see a little pull-down window. You can buy 4-pack, 16-pack, 48-pack, you name it. You want a lot of end loops. Like I said, you want them for all of your remotes and everything. That will save you time. They'll save you money. And when a disaster happens, you know where to get them. They're in your remotes. You're not going to be really using the big screen TV anyways. Now, what I recommend you do with AA and AAA batteries, you want the AA and the AAA end loops, okay? And you want the PowerX charger that I have sitting right above there because they charge eight batteries in two hours, and that's just awesome. And it's also very easy. You just drop it in, and it charges each battery individually, and it tells you the status of each battery. It's so easy, a kid can do it. In fact, that's what I recommend. I recommend this is the duty of your children in the house. It's their duty to keep all the batteries recharged. When the batteries in your remote control go down, they recharge them. They all they use all of the rechargeables in their toys. When they get down in their toys, the kids recharge them. Also, get the kids a, one a favorite flashlight, like the Energizer Trail Finder flashlight I have on Solar One Two Three Four and Battery One Two Three Four dot com. It is a great, incredible, durable uh, headlamp. And it's got many modes on it, and it's got a hard clicky switch on it, which means it's not sitting there waiting for you to turn it on, eating power up. When you turn it off, it's off. So that's why I recommend is get your kids involved in preparedness and start with them by having them being in charge of the batteries. That way, when the power fails, it's like, hey, Dad, no big deal. Look, I got my favorite flashlight, and I can recharge the batteries. Now... If the power failure is going on and you want to recharge your batteries, you need to go over to solar1234.com and take my class, How to Power Your House from Your Car. Because if you have an inverter for your car, and I tell you all about it, you can recharge your AA and AAA batteries forever off of your car, and you will have all of the headlamps and lights and toys going and other portable media off of AA and AAAs that you could possibly want. Also, USB charging as well. So, check those out. Get the Panasonics. Excellent question. And if you want to hear everything I have done with Jack, including all the feedback people have given me, check out Stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. It was a great question. Need some more? Call them in. And I hope to talk to you next week. Bye. Jack, Chris from Minnesota. Just finishing up listening to uh, your podcast about uh, the Estonia uh, virtual citizenship. And I was just wondering, thinking about who would actually be using that, how nations might handle the possibility of uh, host nations where we have sanctions against, such as like Iran and some of the other nations, uh, those companies in those locations being able to uh, create this virtual citizenship and basically go around the existing sanctions that we have. And more recently, things like uh, the sanctions that we've put up against Russia with uh, all of the politics that's been going on in the Crimea region. Just like to hear your thoughts on that. Thanks, Jack. 
I'm not completely clear on this question. It sounds to me like you're asking me, could a nation that we currently are imposing sanctions on use a virtual citizenry to circumvent said sanctions? And I think that would be difficult. And if it's possible by doing business in another nation, let's face it, rich people do business in other nations all the time, and a nation has lots of money because they steal it from their citizens, and they can set up any shell corporation they want. So if Russia wanted to set up a shell corporation to uh, circumvent sanctions by doing business in, let's say, France, they could do it. They wouldn't need this virtual citizenry option. You understand that this thing that uh, Estonia is doing, and I'm not like saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm just saying it is, it is what it is, allows an individual to become a virtual citizen of Estonia. And that allows them to do things like open up a bank account in Estonia, uh, run a business in Estonia, and, and get other things done in Estonia, including things like, let's say that you and I wanted to do business with each other. And let's say that I'm an American and you are a Georgian, not from the state of Georgia, from the nation of Georgia over in the former Soviet Union. And we say we'd like to do business with each other, but we look at uh, contract negotiations and, and contract mediation and we say, I, I don't really want to do this in your country or mine. Well, if we were both virtual citizens of Estonia, Our contract of business, even though our operations of business may not be there, our contract and any mediation thereof could be handled under Estonian law. And we might both just say, you know what, that would be best. It would be best if we wrote our contract in Estonia. That would be one way that would work. Now, would that allow you, if you were a Russian, to circumvent Russian sanctions? Well, not really. I mean, the sanctions on Russia right now, what kind of agreement might I have with you? Let's say you're a really good programmer that lives in Russia, and I can get you for a good rate because you cost me less than an American. That's something that happens all the time right now. So based on the sanctions with Russia right now, can, does it prevent me from going to Rent-A-Coder and hiring you? No. I can hire you in Russia to program for me. I don't use Russian programmers. I know people that do, and you know, for the certain things, they do a good job. So uh, it's really not... The Estonian e-citizen program, the way it's set up now, is not at the level that you know Iran could use it to circumvent oil sanctions. And please, please don't believe a lot of this pantomime bullshit that our government's doing. We're <laughs> these nations that we have sanctions on, we're still buying shitloads of oil from them. It's all pantomime crap. It's all saber rattling crap. It's all theatrics for the people in the audience, you know. Um, Trust me, if we were doing anything that really hurt Russia, you'd know more about it because Russia would be pissed. And Russia is not a weak nation, guys. They're really not. Don't ever believe any insinuation that that's the case. Um, now, who gets hurt in these sanctions, sadly, are individuals. There's people that go hungry and go without you know, medical supplies and things like that over our sanctions. I think the most obnoxious sanction that we retain right now is our uh, refusal to allow imports from Cuba. Uh, Cuba is probably the lowest level threat to our safety, security, and sovereignty of any nation on planet Earth. Um, we are hurting no one but the Cuban people and uh, our politicians that uh, are so afraid that they might lose Florida in elections uh, are gutless in, in that. And that one actually hurts people. But does it? do you think it hurts Raul Castro that we have sanctions against Cuba? Do you really think it hurts him at all? 
Or do you think he's fine? He has his good rum and, you know, his good view of the sea and what have you. It hurts citizens. That's all it hurts. All of these sanctions, that's all they do. So if it did get around it, fine. But, you know, bullies bully whoever they can bully. So if it was used for that, they would just put sanctions against the host country. Um, I do think the virtual citizen thing has legs. I do think it's going to happen both sponsored by true nations and with people creating their own virtual nations, like BitNation and Permacredits. I think that's going to have a major impact on the world over the next you know, 10 to 30 years. It's going to happen. And people say, but it doesn't do you any good because when you're in, you know, the virtual nation doesn't work because you're still there and you're still subject to the laws. Well, hold on. If you're an Estonian citizen born in Estonia, born and raised in Estonia, and you choose to come to the United States to work, you pay U.S. taxes. If you run a business in the United States, you keep your Estonian citizenship, and you're here on a visa, you pay U.S. taxes. My, my business partner, Neil Franklin, is a citizen of the British Commonwealth. Okay? You know? He, he is a U.K. citizen living in the United States. And guess what he has? Social Security number. Yep. You bet he does. And he pays SSI and all U.S. taxes on every bit of income that he earns in the United States through operations in the United States, as long as he lives here. So that's already the case no matter what this, you know, what nation you repatriate to. Unless you go there... You still pay taxes of the host nation that you're in. But the activities there, that's where it gets different. And unless you repatriate the income from those virtual nations, they're still there. And you know what? I look at it this way. The people running this world have had a monopoly on the concept of a nation for a long time. It is going to change. It is going to change. People are going to create cloud cities. Hmm. Is that a little bit prophetic from Star Wars? That was actually a city in the clouds, but what about real cloud cities? Just a thought. Uh, let's take another call for an expert council member. Jack, this is Clinton in Northwest Ohio. Question for you about fruit trees. Uh, I know that you can start from seed, obviously, but you can also start from cuttings. Oftentimes, well, I'm just listening to your orchard episode, uh, you guys were talking about how the, the roots from a tree that is planted from a seed can exert so much force going down. I was curious how that compared to a, a, a tree that was started from a cutting that, you know, trim off part of the branch, stick in the ground, roots out. How, how do those two compare, you know? Um, should I not try rooting these things out, rooting out the uh, trimmings in, in lieu of going to seed? Uh, I'd kind of lean towards doing maybe both. I just you know, to see what happens, do my own experiment. But uh, maybe you can save me some time. All right, thanks. Bye. Yeah, I have a, a pretty in-depth answer for that, but I thought that the guy that I know that knows the most about plant propagation is Nick Ferguson. So I sent this over to Nick at Permaculture Classroom, and here's his response for you. Hey folks, this is Nick Ferguson from Permaculture Classroom calling in to answer a question on tree propagation. Clinton asked a couple questions. How do fruit trees grown from cuttings compare to fruit trees grown from seed? And a question about root vigor and the pressure exerted by roots. So let's start with the fruit trees grown from cuttings um, versus seed. So with seed, the positives are that it will be Easy to grow from seed. You just stick the seed in a pot and it grows. 
Another positive is you'll have a viable tree quicker from seed than from a cutting. It's going to take about a year to get that tree rooted decently. And in that same year's time from seed, that tree could be bigger. That tree could be a foot to two feet tall planted from seed versus from a cutting. Uh, the negative about doing this is the flavor and the type of fruit will be variable when grown from seed. You won't know what you're getting. You can't take a Granny Smith apple and plant the seeds from it and expect Granny Smith apples. You're going to get different things depending on what the what pollinated this Granny Smith apple. So cuttings, the positive about cuttings is the flavor and type of fruit will be the same if you grow it from a cutting. Because you're reproducing this plant asexually. It's vegetative propagation versus from seed, which would be sexual propagation. You're going to get a combination of the two parents when you go from seed. The negatives with cuttings are it's a slower establishment and it's harder to do. So some plants will propagate very easy from cuttings. If you're talking about fruit trees, there are a lot of fruit trees that will not propagate very easily from cuttings. Some of them are quite hard to do from cuttings. Um, let's go into root vigor and pressure now. The pressures exerted by the roots will be about the same, but the vigor, in my opinion, will always be a little bit better from seed than if we ask the plant to heal itself and regrow brand new roots. So the the physical characteristics of the root when you're talking about fruit trees is not going to be very much different. A lot of people think mistakenly that if you were to look at a tree that it is a mirror image the roots below ground. That's not really the case. Most of the fruit trees that you know have Fibrous roots, they have lateral roots, and they very seldom go down more than about five feet. Most of the root mass is going to be in the top two feet of soil, because that's where the most oxygen is. Now, they will have deeper roots to get water and minerals, but most of the root mass will be in the top two feet, and they can extend up to five to ten times the drip line. So um, if you're growing from seed, in my opinion, this is not based technically on science, but it seems to me like if we plant a seed, that, that seed has everything it needs to grow naturally. And growing naturally, in my opinion, is always better than growing unnaturally. So as to the question, should I propagate fruit trees from seed or cuttings? Well, that depends on the positives and negatives that I laid out for you. What do you have time and space for? And it depends on, um, you know, do you want to start 10,000 apple trees to try and find that one new cultivar of apple that's going to be amazing? You might start 100 apple trees from seed and have three or four that are decent tasting. You might have more than that, but it's it's really a gamble. So my suggestion is learn how to graft. If you can learn how to graft, then you can graft cyanwood onto a rootstock 
It's not really that hard. And most of the time, you'll end up with a tree that produces the cultivar you want and be more disease resistant. The reason why commercial growers use grafted trees is not because it's easier. It's an extra step. It's added expense. And it's an added point of failure. The reason why they do it is because they can pick rootstock that is disease resistant or offers an economic incentive in reduced tree growth. It'll still produce the fruit, but it just won't grow as much so they don't have to cut as much when it comes time to prune. So that's a, a benefit to some people. Some people want a full-size rootstock because it's going to grow a tree that is going to be more vigorous, which you sometimes want. Some people might need a tree that's a dwarf or semi-dwarf because they don't have as much space or they want to fit more trees into a smaller space. So my suggestion is learn how to graft. And if you just want to experiment, try both. Give it a shot. But in the meantime, while the experiment's going on, learn how to graft and, and do it a way that's tried and true. Thanks for the question. Keep them coming, TSP listeners. This has been Nick the Plant Geek. Happy growing. Hi, Jack. This is Tori. I have a question about chestnuts, specifically horse chestnuts. I currently live in California, but I'll be moving to Eastern Washington State in a couple of months. My parents live there, and they tell me there's a chestnut tree. I've asked them to get back to me on if it's horse chestnut or if it's an edible chestnut. Now, in my research, I've discovered that horse chestnuts are toxic, but I've seen recipes for medicinal uses. I remember listening to your comfrey episode and you discussing the bad rap that comfrey has received as far as toxicity goes. So I was wondering if this is a comfrey type of toxic or is this like a bad toxic? Also, on burning the horse chestnuts, we'll be getting a wood-burning stove fireplace in the new house, and I was wondering if burning the chestnuts or husks is a safe thing to do, or is there something else that I can do with them? Thanks, Jack, for all your help. Okay, this is a pretty easy one, sort of, kind of. First of all, when you say that horse, or when I say that horse chestnut is toxic, I do not mean it's, like, toxic the way they say comfrey is. Comfrey, if we really went out of our way and really, really tried really, really hard and did a lot of stupid things that almost no one would ever do. I noticed I said almost no one would ever do. We could cause liver toxicity and other problems to ourselves with it due to uh, certain alkaloids that exist with it. Horse chestnut, raw, Uh, specifically, is poison, like really, really sick or dead pretty damn fast. It is toxic, toxic, toxic. It can be used medicinally, but uh, I don't advise it. If you have any questions about what to do, you are not qualified to jack around with it. Okay? And, but I'll talk about how it's used medicinally and why in just a second. But the, there's also things to be more uh, careful of. There is both a California buckeye that could be where you're going and an Ohio buckeye. Some people call these uh, horse chestnut as well. These are more toxic. So you got to make sure you're even dealing with an actual horse chestnut before you even worry about it. Now, the seed and leaf is used for treating varicose veins, hemorrhoids, swollen veins. It's also used for diarrhea, fever, and enlarged prostate. 
the seeds can be processed so that the active chemicals are separated out and concentrated. It's that resulting extract that's used for treating blood circulation problems and chronic venous insufficiency. If one wanted to use horse chestnut for its medicinal properties, I would recommend purchasing it as a prepared um, nutraceutical from a good quality company. I would not. This is not something I'd, I, I would recommend you mess around with. I, I really wouldn't. It would be like um, to treat certain medical conditions. Uh, we use a, a drug called Digitalis for people that have uh, uh, what's it called, where your your lungs filled with fluid, uh, congestive heart failure. And uh, the chalice is poison. It's made from foxglove. And it used to be that they used whole digitalis, which was whole foxglove, as an herb. Doctors prescribed it. And it actually was, in the hands of a trained physician, safer than modern digitalis. How is this possible? Well, As you increase the dosage slowly of the digitalis as a plant, as a whole herb, under careful medical supervision by a qualified health practitioner, being completely clear here, if you ever got to the point where you were starting to make the patient sick, they would start puking, vomiting, being violently ill before you would kill them. But, um, as I tap Charlie here and wake him up from a dog nightmare while he sleeps on the floor, uh, but... When you refine it, if you overdose somebody with, with prescription digitalis, and he needs to be woken up. Charlie, wake up, buddy. <laughs> Live podcasting, folks. Anyway, so <laughs> you wonder what they dream about when they start doing that. Anyway, so if, you are, uh, if you're medicating somebody with, with prescription digitalis, you can very quickly go to the point from their, it's working to you've overdosed them and they're dead. And I learned this reading one of Andrew Weil's books, uh, Optimum Health, I think was the one. And he was talking about how he learned about this because he was reading the, the descriptions in the pharmacopoeia and he found there were these stages of digitalis poisoning. And there was this middle stage of like this vomiting and nausea and everything like that. And he realized he had never seen anybody overdosed on digitalis have these things. And he starts asking doctors and no one knew. This is when he's doing his residence, and he finds like one old doctor that told him what I've just told you that you know, we used to use the whole herb, and then you know, and he basically said we never killed anybody. But I'll tell you what, if you this is the lesson here, if you're doing it yourself, you're probably going to kill yourself, or you're going to kill somebody because you don't know how to handle an herb that has that type of a dangerous potential. So I think when we start self-medicating with herbs. We have herbs that are incredibly safe, can't screw it up. We have herbs that can have some interactions and side effects, but if we know what to look for, we can still play with those. We have herbs that get a little bit edgy. We can really be careful as we learn a little bit more in our walk. And then we have the stuff that's for professionals. And if we want to play with those, we need to study and learn and, 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 and basically uh, work underneath an experienced mentor long enough to de develop that skill as an as, as a true master herbalist. And we should, in our own self-work, work down here at the level of very, very safe. And as we move at closer and closer up the spectrum to things that are more and more active in their components, we should look to prepared, uh, prepared uh, substances that we have known dosages so we can stay within the guidelines. It's just a lot easier unless you develop that skill set. So horse chestnut... Poisonous, not like Comfrey. Let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. This is Andy from Bedford, Michigan. I'm just calling with a question. Maybe you've got some help for me here. Um, keep a long story short, my wife and I had a hiccup for a while, and our credit is not so great, but we're on track now. We're doing really well with our finances. We bought a plot of land we'd like to buy, uh, good price, good location, everything we're looking for. Uh, just not sure if there's a way to go about getting finance for our land with the credit issues we have. Maybe there's some loopholes with farming land and whatnot. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. Yeah, there's there's really no loopholes here in buying raw land. Now, it is in some ways easier to get a loan on land for agricultural purposes, specifically land that's already zoned for agricultural purposes, if you're getting a loan specifically to run the land for agricultural purposes. In other words, you're buying a farm without a farmhouse. That is, with decent credit anyway, not as hard to do as just me wanting to go out and buy a piece of dirt. Problem is, you have to have some level of a track record in agriculture, you know, having, you know, been filing that Schedule F and all to get that type of loan in most instances. There's certainly not going to be the case that somebody that doesn't really know nothing at all about farming is going to go borrow money to buy land uh, for farming and not really do it, and they're just going to do that so they get, it's not going to happen. It's, it's, you're going to have to, You're going to have to have a business case to make to the lending office to, to, to justify that loan, including some level of reasonable assurance that you actually know how to run a farm as a going concern. That decision is not a rubber stamp mortgage by any, any means. If I told you I knew that of every option that was available for people that want to buy raw land, I would be lying, though. There may be some other opportunities and ways that you can do that, and I'll put that out to the audience right now. If you know of a way... That a person with, let's say, less than stellar credit can qualify for purchase of raw land. Let me know and do that in the subject, uh, the the, uh, the comments section for today's show uh, again, which is uh, episode fourteen hundred and fifty-seven, and that way everybody, including the caller, can learn from it. Um, in general, the the way that you're usually able to finagle getting a mortgage on raw land is to go in and get all the surveying done. All of the analysis done, floodplain analysis, everything. Uh, get bids on building a house, and then you can usually get a construction loan that includes the cost of the purchase of the land. All that wrapped up into a mortgage. But with less than seller credit, it's going to be even harder, right? It's 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 stickier than it is to just go buy a house. Um, When you're buying raw land, there's a few ways that make sense for it. One, you have sufficient credit that you can get a loan because you can just get a loan. And there's plenty of people walking around and get a $50,000 personal loan. Uh, two is you own enough land already or you have enough real property already to get a line of credit against your existing property and use that to buy the other property. That's another way you can do it. A third is to obtain owner financing. And this is something to check into Generally, you'll pay a bit of a higher interest rate, but you can get the loan. Um, I prefer owner financing on property than a lease with option to purchase because that usually results in a very small amount of the lease actually going toward the purchase price. Um, most landowners that want to sell their land, unless they need a lump sum now, okay, and when I say own, I mean they don't carry debt on it, will entertain the concept of owner financing. 
they'll probably want a pretty hefty down payment, and they're probably not going to finance it to you for 30 years. But if I can earn 6.5%, 7% on a piece of property, get it out from under my feet, get a check out of you for, let's say, $10,000 uh, now, uh, pass on the cost of things like the property tax and responsibilities and insurance costs and everything else to you, and create a cash flow for myself, and uh, assuming I live in a trust deed state, my repossession of that land should you fail to render payment uh, for a period greater than 60 to 90 days is relatively easy, quick, and can be done filing a piece of paper with the, uh, with the county sheriff uh, through the court system, then I'm interested because I'm not getting that kind of return on my money anyway else, and that, plant, that land's just sitting there and I ain't got nothing out of it, and I want to get rid of it. That's what's on the market. So it is possible, but you do have to make sure that you're not getting completely ripped off. I've looked at buying a couple plots of land that there was owner financing on, and I just went, you're selling this piece of land for 50 grand. You've got owner financing on it, and you're charging 7.5% interest on it. And so you're actually selling this piece of land for far more than $50,000 when all the financing is on which is fine in of itself. But the problem is that this land is worth about $30,000. And there's a lot of stuff sitting out there like that, that they know that people can't get loans, and they know they're land hungry, and, and they do things like that. So um, now, if you're talking big tracts of land, commercial, agricultural, there's all types of ways. But when you're talking about just a couple, that their, their credit's a little dinged up, and they want to go out and buy 20 acres or something – I don't know of a real easy way to do that. I know that it's actually much harder, and generally speaking, it, it is easier to either save up enough money to buy it for cash and do it later, uh, to get enough money to be able to go and offer a significant down payment that makes the owner consider owner financing, or just find owner financing that works, um, or, again, to have sufficient credit capability to leverage other assets to the purchase of raw land. And be careful with debt. Um, if you notice, I'm not going, debt's horrible here. I think consumer debt is stupid. I think debt on real property is one of the only times that leveraging debt makes sense. I still think you have to be careful with it, um, but I would much rather somebody leverage debt on a piece of property than on a big screen TV. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. It's Brent in Prince Edward Island. Question for Keith Snow. Is the cost difference between salon cinnamon and what is advertised as regular cinnamon worth it? Uh, a co-worker of mine pointed out that uh, she would like to see salon cinnamon instead of regular cinnamon, which I think is called cassia. Uh, I'd like an explanation if that uh, is possible. Great. Thank you very much. Bye. I'm actually going to take that one because I'm very familiar with the subject, and it's something that's kind of, well, important to me uh, that you guys know. And if Keith has any additions to add to it, uh, he's welcome to call those in, and I'll play them on a later show. Uh, but the big difference between Celion and Cassia is Cassia ain't cinnamon. It ain't cinnamon. It's not cinnamon. It's not cinnamon. It's not, it's not, it's not forever infinity. And, dear listener... Uh, 99.9% of all the stuff that you've bought from the supermarket, you bring home and put on your toast with butter and sugar to make cinnamon toaster or put in a glass of tea or whatever else you do with it, uh, make mulling spices for the holidays or whatever, is cassia, which means it sells sell to you, it says cinnamon on it, and it ain't cinnamon. They are very different plants that they come from. They are both bark. Uh, off of a plant, and you can, if, you, if it's ground, it's hard to tell. 
If it is a stick, it is very easy to tell. Very, very simple. When you look at a stick of cassia, which is what's normally sold as cinnamon, and you look at the end of it, it's thick. It's very, very thick. Uh, eighth of an inch, maybe. And it's like curled. And what it is is a big, thick, one piece of strip bark off a cassia tree. And it curls like that. And it dries and it's hard. If you try to break it, it's very, very hard to break. It is not malleable. It does not bend. Okay? If you have Celion cinnamon, which is actual cinnamon, which is true cinnamon, you look at it and it looks more like, almost like a laminated, uh, thing. It's a thinner bark with multiple layers all wrapped up together. And you can break it really easy. It's really easy to break. It'll crumble a little bit and it'll certainly bend. If you stick a stick of Celion cinnamon into a glass of hot tea, a cup of hot tea to make some cinnamon flavor, versus a cassia and leave it in there for a little bit, the the the, uh, the Celion will get almost almost rubbery, and the cassia will be hard as a brick until you boil the hell out of it. They're just not the same thing. What is the difference? Celion, true cinnamon, is a highly valued culinary and medicinal spice, and the price can be up to ten times more. Uh, than cassia or Chinese cinnamon. Okay, it can cost them ten times more, and that's because it's highly valued as, as both a culinary and medicinal. Uh, cassia is commonly available and very cheap. You get a bag of sticks for less than a buck. You get what you pay for. Uh, Celion contains a small amount of something called curmian. This is a naturally occurring blood thinning substance. And it's recommended for daily, for regular use, and it helps correct and balance blood sugar. Okay? So when you hear things like cinnamon being used to help balance blood sugar, maintain good blood sugar as, as, a, as an aid for both type 1 and type 2 diabetics, etc., only if it's Celion. Okay? Because what's in cassia, it has a high level of, of the same substance And at that level, it can actually be harmful to the liver and the kidney when consumed daily or regularly. It's not a concern for regular use. So you're, you're overdosing with what could be beneficial if you're using it regularly. So if you have cinnamon tea on a regular basis to help balance your blood sugar, which is not a terrible idea, that's great if it's sailing on and you're ODing with, it, with, with what goes from being beneficial to toxic. The color's different. Light tan is what cinnamon's supposed to look like, not red. Um, again, the bark is like paper-thin, textured bark. Not paper-thin, but paper-like. It makes you think of like thick uh, paper, like uh, like papyrus or something like that. And, and where your you know your your cassia is a really uneven, thick bark, um, easily broken versus tough. That's how you tell the two apart. It's the taste though that actually is kind of more important to me. The taste of Celion is delicate. It's sweet. It's got little notes of clove in it. It's not pungent and full. It's a much more delicate, gentle, sweet spice. It's what belongs in your body for your food. So will I spend more money on Celion? Abso-frickin-lutely. Uh, I buy from a supplier on Amazon.com. I get a great big can of it for like 20-some bucks. It lasts a long time, and the main thing I do with it is make apple pie moonshine, which some of you guys are going to get the sample next week. But in all my use of cinnamon, whether it's for enhancement of something like we just did uh, a pork roast, 
that we did with cranberry and orange with a little bit of uh, nutmeg and cinnamon. We use real cinnamon. I don't use that other crap. I, I wouldn't refuse to eat something that was made with it, okay? But when I'm making the choice for myself, in the end, does it cost more? Yes. How much of it do you use a year, though? A little bit goes a long way, and it's just a better product. So that's my opinion. Chef Keith, if you're out there, if you have anything to add on the difference between Celion and Cassia, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, otherwise, let's take another call. Uh, yes, Jack. My name is Lucas. I'm uh, in Oklahoma City. My question is about soil amendments. I am currently sheet mulching two areas for spring gardens, uh, one for an annual vegetable production and another for an herb garden. I have raked up falling leaves off of the trees and piled them up underneath the tarps. My question is, what soil amendments should I consider putting in there, and when should I add those soil amendments? I am on the edge of zones 7B and 7A. Um, any advice you have on that subject would be greatly appreciated. Um, thank you for everything you do. You have a wonderful day. Bye. Um, what I would add now to help feed the soil, the soil organisms is some dried horticultural molasses or some uh, mola uh, horticultural molasses liquid, uh, either or. Uh, and if you're doing the dry, I mean, you're probably looking about like, I don't know the, the area you have, but if you think of the area the size of a, a standard bedroom in a modern house, not a master, but like the kid's bedroom, you know, 10 by 12, 12 by 14 in there, I'm going to use three or four handfuls spread out across that area. Uh, with, uh, with the liquid, I'm going to use a couple glugs of liquid per per uh, two-gallon watering can, and I'm going to give a good soaking to an area about that size with probably two cans. Um, that's going to feed your soil organisms. It's sugar. It's, it's candy and cakes. It's what the little guys like. Uh, it's also going to be very attractive to earthworms and things like that. If you have earthworm castings, that's a great place to, to throw them, especially if you're doing your own, like, you know, worm farm, uh, especially if you're using, like, an earthworm versus a composting worm, if you have a system like that, so you can start increasing the number of earthworms there, but they're going to show up anyway. Uh, probably the biggest other thing you could use as a soil amendment there is compost tea. And I don't know that I would worry about that too much right now. That's more when you go into planting. But right now, it couldn't hurt to hit it with some dried or wet molasses and, you know, a couple gallons of compost tea. Uh, those will really improve the soil activity. And then you kind of go as, as you need as you go forward. But if you're sheet mulching, a lot of things are going to take care of themselves there. That's a real easy one. Let's take another call. Jack, Jacob here in Michigan, Tractor.com, Zello. Got a comment for you, one of your calling episodes, 1420, talking about the problem with Americans feeling kind of just complacent about the fact of America being number one, of thinking it, but just acting like America is number 50. you saying we need to go back to acting like America is number one if we want to actually have that be true. Just a comment on that. What we need, what I think is we've lost the drive, the hunger that we've had, that when America was being established, the desire to be number one that we had that pushed us to the position, that we just became complacent. What we need to do is recover the feeling of being number two of that hunger, that anger that you have, that drive to of being almost to what you need, but not quite there, of that push that you need that anyone who's 
compete in sports who's that, that last-ditch moment of being behind the eight ball of needing to take that position, that's what we need as Americans, that drive and anger to push us to be number one once again. Thank you. Well, I, I don't think we actually disagree at all. I think we're saying the same thing a little bit different ways, and I have some great thoughts on this. This is a great last question for the day. Before I give you my thoughts, so I want to play something for you. There's a TV show called The Newsroom, and I've never really gotten into it uh, at all, but there is a YouTube clip that I think was used to promote it before it was even released where one of the main characters is asked a question by a young student about America being the greatest country in the world, and this was his response. I'm going to play this for you now, and I'm going to tell you where I think we're headed and what we have to do if we want to head somewhere better. Uh, but here you go. This, again, is from a show called The Newsroom, which I've never actually watched, but I do... Um, appreciate at least the sentiment of what's being said in this next clip. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Jenny. I'm a sophomore, and this is for all three of you. Can you say in one sentence or less what... <laughs> um, you know what I mean. Can you say why America is the greatest country in the world? Diversity and opportunity. Lewis? Uh, freedom and freedom. So let's keep it that way. Well, the New York Jets. <laughs> no, I'm going to hold you to an answer on that. What makes America the greatest country in the world? Well, Lewis and Sharon said it. Diversity and opportunity and freedom and freedom. Not letting you go back to the airport without answering the question. Well, our Constitution is a masterpiece. James Madison was a genius. The Declaration of Independence is, for me, the single greatest piece of American writing. You don't look satisfied. One's a set of laws and the other's a declaration of war. I want a human moment from you. What about the people? Why is it not the greatest the country in the world, Professor? That's my answer. You're saying yes. Let's talk about fine. But Sharon, the NEA is a loser. Yeah, it accounts for a penny out of her paycheck, but he gets to hit you with it anytime he wants. It doesn't cost money. It costs votes. It costs airtime and column inches. You know why people don't like liberals? Because they lose. If liberals are so smart, how come they lose so damn always? Hey. And with a straight face, you're going to tell students that America is so star-spangled awesome that we're the only ones in the world who have freedom? Canada has freedom. Japan has freedom. The UK, France, Italy, Germany, Spain, Australia, Belgium has freedom. So 207 sovereign states in the world, like 180 of them have freedom. All right. And yeah, you, uh, sorority girl, just in case you accidentally wander into a voting booth one day, there's some things you should know. And one of them is... 
There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy, 27th in math, 22nd in science, 49th in life expectancy, 178th in infant mortality, third in median household income, number four in labor force, and number four in exports. We lead the world in only three categories. Number of incarcerated citizens per capita, number of adults who believe angels are real, and defense spending, where we spend more than the next 26 countries combined, 25 of whom are allies. Now, none of this is the fault of a 20-year-old college student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation period ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what you're talking about. Sure used to be. We stood up for what was right. We fought for moral reasons. We passed laws, struck down laws for moral reasons. We waged wars on poverty, not poor people. We sacrificed. We cared about our neighbors. We put our money where our mouths were, and we never beat our chest. We built great big things, made ungodly technological advances, explored the universe, cured diseases, and we cultivated the world's greatest artists and the world's greatest economy. We reached for the stars acted like men. We aspired to intelligence. We didn't belittle it. It didn't make us feel inferior. We didn't identify ourselves by who we voted for in the last election, and we didn't, we didn't scare so easy. <laughs> we were able to be all these things and do all these things because we were informed by great men, men who were revered. First step in solving any problem is recognizing there is one. America is not the greatest country in the world anymore. Enough? All right, I have two things to say before I, I give my thoughts on the call and, uh, in, and in the spirit of what you just heard. Uh, number one, if you go listen to it on YouTube, and I will have a link in the show notes so you can do that, uh, you will hear the F word twice, and you will hear the colloquialism GD when all you heard here was was damn. Those are two phrases that I don't say on the air, and while I've let a guest or two sneak by with one or two of them here and there, I don't allow that anymore. Uh, you might wonder why I do that when I you know, will say a word like shit on the air without a second thought. Um, I try to be reasonable in... My accommodations of people's sensibilities and, and what they'll, you know, what they come to expect from uh, a talk show. And I find words like shit and damn not to be a big deal. I just don't. I can see why people would be offended by the F word. I, I can see why some people would see that vulgar. So I abstain from its use and I don't let it on here. And while I don't completely agree with the reasoning behind a lot of religious people's problem with, with, with GD and, and thinking it is uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, I understand why you think that, and I respect your, your faith. So I, I, I don't put those two on the air. Just wanted to say that because if you go listen to the, uh, the actual YouTube video, you're going to hear it in full the way it was intended. I also made it a little bit shorter, taking some long pauses out, which don't do a lot without the video for dramatic effect. The other thing I wanted to say is he makes a statement, the worst period, generation period, ever period, about the current generation. And I've already done a whole show on the lost generation telling you why we can't blame the current generation for all of the problems that they have. So I'm not going to speak to that, and I don't endorse that. And there's a little teaching moment here before I go on. 
You will never hear anybody speak with meaning and passion on anything as complex as this or similar to it in any way ever infinity that really believes what they believe and speaks with independent thought and doesn't parrot the pablum bullshit of others and agree with everything they say. So take the larger meaning rather than nitpick on the bullshit that you disagree with. I'm just saying. And there's a reason people feel that way in that particular instance. And a case could be made for it as long as we looked at all of the matters within the case. So a little teachable moment there in, in, in that. So the reason I played this, though, is it is the most spot-on example I've ever seen come out of mainstream media. And I almost wonder how it happened, right? Because this is on like a major network or major cable network or something like that. And... Those words, while I don't agree with all of them, again, have so much truth in them. But it, but it does harken back to what the caller was saying. Our problem is not that we're not number one. It's that we're freaking not number one. We're not behaving like the greatest nation in the world, but we're still waving the foam finger from winning the freaking Olympics in hockey against the Russians in 1980. That's the problem. We are still walking around with our head in the clouds, uh, but we don't realize the clouds are gas clouds because our heads are up our ass. And what the caller is saying is when, you, when you're not number one and you know it, then you got something to work for. Then you got something to shoot for. And when you're, you know, you're right there at the edge, you're number two. That's when you're fighting. No, I'll tell you what. You know when you fight your ass off? When you're number 50 and you know it. When you're number 50, but you know damn well you're better than number 50. You know that 50 is bullshit and it's not good enough, damn it. That's when you start battling and fighting your ass off. And when you do it, and all of a sudden now you're 45, and now you're like, you know what? This isn't good enough either. I've had enough of this shit. I'm not taking this shit anymore. I demand better of myself. I demand better of others. That's when you rise. The great triumphs in history are all from those who rose and sometimes becoming the best, sometimes being number one, is the worst thing that can ever happen to you or anybody else or any other entity or any company or anything. There was a time when I was fighting so hard to get somewhere in business. And I was interviewing with companies. Many of you know I do not have a college degree. And it was always a roadblock at times until I was successful enough that it didn't matter anymore. But I was absolutely compelled to do more, to do better, to get somewhere. And that's why I became successful. And in that time, I would be asked on occasion in an interview, how do you rate yourself at this or that, people skills or negotiating capability or whatever, on a scale of 1 to 10? And I'd always go, a 9. And I'd always say that because I knew what the next question was going to be. Well, that's, that's pretty good, but why not a 10? Well, I'll tell you why not a 10. 10 is perfection. 10 means there's no room for improvement. 10 means there's nothing else for me to do to be any better at what I do. The minute you rate yourself a 10... You're on your way to being a three again. So I'll always be a nine. Because I'm always going to try to do more. I'm always going to try to do better. You tell me where the hell that spirit went. Where did it go? Why have we let go of it? Because we did hit the top. 
or at least we, in our collective delusion, were close enough to it that we convinced ourselves we were there. And then we all put on the foam fingers and start shouting, We're number one, USA. We're number one, USA. Really? Have you looked around the world lately? And I know this seems so awful to say that we're not the greatest country in the world anymore. But what are we the greatest at? Basketball? Uh, really? If we're the greatest country, what are we the greatest at? We're still the largest economy in the world. That ain't going to last much longer based on simple mathematical projections. But do I say this because I hate America? Isn't that the talking head bullshit of the right-wing radio conservative? Isn't that, why, why do you people hate America? I don't hate America. I don't like you. And I don't like the left either, by the way. No, what I hate is bullshit. I hate when you tell people this is the greatest place in the world, but you have nothing substantive to base it on other than a history book. That was yesterday. What about today? And what about tomorrow? But the truth is, this nation should be the greatest nation in the world. And it can be the greatest nation in the world again. But it won't happen because we put a different guy in charge of the White House. And it won't happen because of a new curriculum in our schools. None of those things will make it happen. What will make this country the greatest nation in the world again is when we stop believing that we are and demand that we become as individuals. The greatest failure of leadership in this country is not at the corporate level, it is not at the religious level, and it is not at the political level, it is at the individual level, and in case you're not clear what that means, get up right now, go find a mirror, look at it, the individual is you, and me, and all of us, and we have all fallen short of trying to be truly great truly special at times in our lives. And as long as we shirk it with, it's them, it's the liberals, it's the conservatives, it's those stupid people that don't vote, it's those idiots that vote third party. It's this person of that color and this person of the other color and illegal immigrants and it's it's this and that and it's Monsanto and GMO. These are all problems, but you are the solution to them. We are the solution to them. We will never return to the glory that we were as long as we believe that we're still there falsely. There is no reason that America should not be the greatest nation in the world. None at all. We have every opportunity. We have every natural resource we need in abundance. We have every bit of technology and innovation that's necessary to capitalize on those things and do it in a way that's not only profitable and prosperous, but yes, we can take care of our environment. We do not have to destroy the planet. We certainly don't have to turn our own nation into one that becomes a desert, which is what we're doing in so many areas. We don't have to deplete everything to use it. We can make things right. And we should, by God. No people 
This is where people are right when they say America is the greatest nation. When it comes down to the opportunity that exists, no people have ever been granted a greater opportunity than those born in this nation. I believe that. Which also makes it absolutely disgusting how much of it has been squandered in the name of, oh, we're great because we think we are. Caller's absolutely right. The problem isn't that America is not number one. The problem is that we th still think that we are. But what I meant when I said is, if we want to be number one, we have to act like we are. I don't mean wave the foam finger. I don't mean say it a thousand times. I mean do what winners do. Winners don't ask for permission To be winners. Winners do not act, ask for permission for their own liberties. Winners don't worry about what losers are doing. They focus on winning. And they follow the examples of those who win. Winners don't pass the buck and blame somebody else for their problems. Even when somebody else contributed to them, they realize that they are their own solution. When, when winners fall down, they get up. Real winners, when people are trying to help them up, they might accept a little bit of help, but they're usually pushing the person that's trying to help them the hell out of the way so they can get back to doing what they were doing. Winners quit when what they're doing is wrong. The whole thing, winners never quit, is bullshit. Winners quit doing things when they realize they're a mistake. That's how they win. They change course, they adapt, they improvise, they overcome. Winners find their strengths and play to their strengths. Winners find their weaknesses and surround themselves with those who can shore up those weaknesses. Winners build companies. Winners build programs that teach children how to become young men and women. Winners give everything they have. Because they know it's worth it. And most winners start out as losers. We are losing. We are losing in the world today. And that can be our greatest asset. If we'll just grow the hell up and accept that as the truth that it is. And then say to ourselves, it's not good enough. The quality of the people that they're putting in front of me to run my nation is not good enough. So I'll run my nation for myself in spite of these people. That's what it takes. There's no jobs out there, so I will create one. My job sucks, so I'll get a better one. My job sucks, so I'll move up with anyone. I don't care what, but that needs to be the attitude. We need to be so motivated that we're knocking people out of the way on the way to where we're going if, they are, if they're not going there too. You can come along, you can step aside, but get the hell out of the way. I don't have time for it. I don't have time for it. I got stuff to do, man. I got things to make happen. This is how we change this country for the better. Next week, you can watch a pantomime take place. Or, next week... You can decide, 
this is what I'm going to do this week to make my life better. This is what I'm going to do to make the lives of my families better. This is what I'm going to do to make the lives of the people in my community better. This is what I'm going to do to further my own American dream. Because as long as you believe in the American dream, it's nothing but a belief. If you want the American dream to be true, you have to build it for yourself. It is not a birthright. It is not an entitlement. The American dream is an idea. The American dream is not even tied to America. The American dream is a universal, global idea. It's why the Bill of Rights was written specifically to pertain to human beings, recognizing the pre-existence of their rights and thereby protecting those rights from government, not granting those rights from government. That's reality. And that means the American dream is not limited to Americans. The American dream is an ideal that anyone who works hard enough can achieve that which they most desire. And if you think that is limited to the borders of the nation of America, you don't understand the American dream. The American dream is a universal ideal. The gift of being born an American is you're told about that dream right away. What you do with it is up to you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.